are currently sitting in the salubrious basement of Little Shop of Heroes, the uh, comic store in Dunfermline. Um, this is our ostensibly our back issue area, where we keep all of our older comics, which are a pound each, a, a magnificent pound each. The wonders of the comic book industry mean that as soon as a comic has been out for more than four weeks and less than 30 years, it's worth a pound. So within that within that time gap of four weeks and thirty years, you have essentially got a pound comic, um, and we're here to talk about the fabulous Spectrum of Adventure, the wonderful book that is about the best genre of computer gaming in history, which is text-based adventures. Not everyone's cup of tea, but definitely mine. And we're here with Tom who's going to be discussing the, the book. Tom is the author of the book uh, and clearly also passionate about Spectrum text-based adventuring. Thanks very much for having me today, Albie. Not at all, you're very welcome and thank you for enduring the, the slightly damp uh, environs. <laughs> so first thing I'm going to ask is very, very simple. Um, why did you write a book about text-based adventures on the ZX Spectrum? Well, you never forget your first love. And for me, that was the Spectrum. Right. Five million units in its heyday, and it's still going strong today. And I've never forgotten the good times I had in the 80s with these text adventure games. Mm -hmm. And I was really very keen, for the sake of posterity, to catalogue just a small sample of some of the games that were available at the time. That's fair enough, I think. I can remember um, the sense of wonder when I first loaded up The Hobbit, mm. which was the very first one I played. I know it wasn't the first one, but it was the very first one that I'd played. Um, and obviously once I'd got the volume and the tone correct on the tape deck and it was all installed, just entering that world, um, a world that was something that triggered... The, uh, your imagination so it, you didn't it wasn't you weren't limited by the the limitations of the 40k of memory hmm. and the graphics that it could display yeah. you, the only limit was your own imagination hmm. so i can absolutely understand uh why you're you're so keen on the on the subject yeah and it's amazing how influential that game's been i mean i've seen recent interviews with Veronica Megler who programmed it mm -hmm. um, and it's astonishing to see just the impact it had on individual lives. Yeah, I can I mean it did on me. Um, it came bundled with the book which was fantastic uh, and it meant that it also exposed countless amounts of people to the book for the first time. I mean some of us were going to after reading the book and thinking I must play this game but for lots of others that actually exposed them to the book in the first place. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is, though, and I'm going to ask this question, get this question out of the way very quickly, because it's always been my bugbear, and it's something that people who have never played text-based adventures or have dabbled casually always complain about. Parsers. Hmm. Um, it has to be said <laughs> that with 48K and a lot of story to tell, hmm. sometimes the text commands are a bit tricky. Yes, that's very true. And I think when adventure design systems came out, like the Graphic Adventure Creator and the mm -hmm. Quill, um, I, I think parsers became more standardised yeah. as the decade went on. But some of the early games, absolutely, there are some interesting commands to be had. And a, a lot of head-scratching as you try to work out what those commands were. Oh, yes. 
part uh, of the art of the game was not completing the puzzle, but working out the word that was required to complete the puzzle. <laughs> and, and when you mention that, I mean, the one that springs to mind, there was a game called Shrewsbury Key, mm-hmm. which was brought out by Player Software in the mid-80s. And there's a puzzle where you have to get through a hole in a hedge. Okay. And um, I, I seem to remember spending weeks on that one, trying to work out what the answer was. <laughs> Intriguing war with words. It was always a challenge, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A challenge of the memory of the, of the, of the computer system. Yeah. So, the 80s are considered the golden age for interactive fiction. What is it that you think that makes that the golden age? Well, in terms of a genre, I mean, I think the, the easy answer to that is probably Infocom, mm-hmm. who produced almost all of their games in the 1980s um, and were probably at the, the head of the game when it came to producing interactive fiction, particularly for American audiences. Okay. Now, the Infocom games were never available for the Spectrum, even the 128K Spectrum mm-hmm. or, or the disc-based version of Plus 3 that came out a few years later. Um, but in terms of certainly British gaming, uh, there was just such a plethora of titles. I mean, if you look on um, websites like World of Spectrum, you're looking at perhaps 2,200 titles, not all of them in English, mm-hmm. um, to do with uh, text adventuring. And they were just so inventive, they really yeah. were. I mean, it was it was really the golden age where you could get somebody sitting in their spare room coding a game, which they could then go and sell to a publisher. Um, and, uh, and it would be guaranteed a fairly wide audience. So from that point of view, I mean, there were just so many different um, subgenres yep. to, to, to play with. I mean, obviously sci-fi and fantasy were a, a, a big part of it, but there were a lot of different sort of dramatic titles and you know, thrillers and things like that as well. So from that point of view, uh, there was just so much going on. And I think nowadays with the internet and internet-based communities, it's easy to overlook just what a fantastic community there was back then. You know, everybody was buying magazines like your Sinclair and yeah. you know, Spectrum, the Sinclair user and things like that. Um, and uh, obviously if you wanted clues for the games, you had to go and buy the magazines and, and, and read the, the columns. Um, so from that point of view, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's good because even now, um, obviously there are online preservation societies that keep these magazines alive. Um, it's interesting to look back and see just what was happening in the, the community at the time. Definitely. I mean, I can remember playground conversations, discussion groups about how do you get past X level or Y level in a particular game. Um, how how big of an effect do you think the spectrum, the importance of the spectrum itself and its ease of use was and added on to that, how big an effect on creativity do you think the limitations of space made well i think that's an interesting question actually i mean i know that clive sinclair in the early 80s seemed very keen for everyone to get involved in home computing Mm -hmm. um i think he really saw it as being the future it wasn't simply a commercial concern for him and he in more recent years has said that's one of the tragedies as it were of modern computing is the fact that there is there is so much more available in terms of capacity graphics cards things Mm -hmm. like that when people were left with the spectrum's architecture in the 80s they had to be inventive you had to find creative solutions to programming challenges and i think he did that well I, i think the programmers of the time did that brilliantly yeah and it's how they did that how they overcame these issues particularly with arcade games you know when you're looking at bespoke system architecture that had <laughs> to be replicated in some way uh, on the spectrum that even if you weren't replicating the experience directly you were still giving some kind of taste of what yes. the original game was like um so yeah from that point of view i think there was a, a lot of creativity and that was certainly the case with the text adventure games 
you know, because I mean the ambition was incredible when you think about it. Yeah, the ambition was the you've you've spoken about it earlier actually. The diversity of topic and the ambition of the game was phenomenal. Uh, the eighties itself was an interest well, was an interesting time. Um, pop culture wise, politics wise. Do you think that that had an effect on the games? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see a number of games from the eighties with a, a definite political slant or you know social cultural slant mm. certainly um and um i think because it was a, a high watermark for satire programs like spitting image and that yeah. kind of thing being on at the time um there's definitely an attempt to replicate that in the, the games of the period and i think you see it most definitely in games by places like the St. bride school and uh, delta four okay um where you see a lot of generic parody um which in its way indirectly sends up a lot of what was going on in mm -hmm. pop culture at the time yeah Parody has played a big part in text adventures, though, of course, as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, famously, there's Boggett and games of that nature as well. Yeah. Um, so, did literature inform video games or text adventures, or did the text adventures inform literature? I think there's probably an element of both, to be honest, um, because interactive fiction, I guess, must have started with those adventure books where you can choose what direction to go in if you want to go ah, to Ah right, turn you, to page. Yeah, if you want yeah. to if you want to go left, turn to page two, if you want to go right, turn to page five, okay. that kind of thing. So I mean that that had been going on. Obviously role playing had been a huge thing as well. Um tabletop role playing. So I suppose really what you see in the eighties is a logical progression of that kind of interactive narrative. But it's intriguing that, that kind of thing is still with us. I mean it evolved obviously into the, the point and click adventure mm -hmm. game in the uh, the 1990s, but I mean, even now, if you look at the the Black Mirror movie, Bandersnatch, I mean, you're, yeah. you're still seeing the same kind of principles playing out now. It's it's that interactive narrative aspect, I mm -hmm. think, that's what what interests people. Do you see a place now for purely text based adventures or adventures with static images and primarily text? Well, there does seem to be a market for it, which is interesting. I mean, you see an awful lot of people um, now in independent programming communities, yeah. you know, homebrew uh, programmers, who are very interested in the challenges of it. And I think yeah. I think really it is that issue, the challenge of, of, of presenting this kind of narrative experience. Often, you know, if it's for a, a, a retro computing system, mm -hmm. you, then you have obviously the architecture of the time to deal with as well. So, I mean, there's a challenge of having to, to come to terms with that and building on what other programmers have have done in the past. So I think there's an element of that, certainly. But I think there's also the issue now of this kind of cross-pollination of literary sources and okay. things like that. Um, the famous one probably being Fergus McNeil's um, The Big Sleaze. Okay. It came out yeah. in 1987, okay. um, which was beautifully written, incredibly um, skillful parody um, of the whole Raymond Chandler, yeah. Mickey Spillane type of detective fiction. But again, able to parody modern cultural mm -hmm. uh, phenomena as well so to be able to do that in such a intriguing way because obviously you split the game over three parts and you were able to travel back and forward between the parts um, depending on obviously what you were doing what kind of puzzles you were solving at the time but it was a good way of fitting a much larger playing area into a fairly restricted amount of memory right so well a very restrictive amount of memory initially certainly yeah. with the 48k um I don't think the 16K machine was an initial foray, but the 48K was the one that pretty much everyone had. Mm. What influence... Uh, the, the quality and breadth of the games we've, we've alluded to. So the lack of different platforms that were accessible at the time, 
the spectrum, I think at the time it, you fell into a spectrum or a Commodore camp. You were either a you were a, you were a Commodore sixty four or you were a Spectrum person. Mm. Um, and the Commodore sixty four had its advantages with sound and and slightly with graphics, mm. which I think made the the Spectrum a more logical place for games of this nature. Uh, do you think the lack of different options helped focus? people's attention on that system yeah. well quite possibly i mean i, I was a non-conformist because i had an amstrad cpc nah. but um, did you have the green was it the green screen no no it was a color one ah, it was, right, it was a posh one that's fancy <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no i switched over to the spectrum at the end of the 80s so i got a, a plus 2a okay and, and that made the difference that was you know up to 128 kilobytes mm -hmm. then that was yeah. that was luxury stuff you know oh, definitely but um but yeah i mean i think that's absolutely true i mean you had these sort of big three systems and they say predominantly the Commodore 64 mm -hmm. and the Spectrum that dominated in the in the uh, in the 80s and it's very interesting that rivalry which mm -hmm. still exists today yeah. over what one was the best um, but yeah I suppose so I mean I, I think perhaps the advantage the Commodore had was that it did have access um, to the Infocom games mm -hmm. if you had a disc based um, Commodore and um, I think that was the intriguing thing because with the Spectrum there was much more of a focus whether intentionally or not on British programming mm -hmm. and, and British um, publishers and from that point of view you had titles like the Magnetic Scrolls games that yes. came out for Plus 3 I and mean, that was the absolute gold standard yeah. of, of British interactive fiction at the time um, so so yeah I mean I think there's a lot to be said for both systems actually mm -hmm. and a lot to commend them yeah I mean I'm 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 not a, I'm not partisan I mean I, I've I'm a kind of a collector of old computers and so I, I love them all for their own individual reasons but the, the spectrum for me always felt like um more accessible for the home user it felt more accessible from the perspective of being able to create something for it mm. rather than have to go out and buy your your your, your goods in uh, it always felt like well i, I can do that I, mm. I can i can see myself creating something of that nature um there's an ev is there an ev evolution in in the games throughout the eighties? Do you think, or what is the what, or more elegantly put, what are the points in the eighties that the games suddenly evolved? There must have been particular games that took a great leap forward. Mm. I think that point probably came around about the mid eighties. I think if there was if there was any kind of golden age within the golden age, mm -hmm. it would be about nineteen eighty six. Right. Um, it's an interesting thing because when The Hobbit came out in 82 it was mm -hmm. so sophisticated and so ahead of its time um, and it had even things like spatial awareness where you yeah. could put objects inside objects and things like that um, it really broke the mould quite early on and it mm -hmm. raised the bar very high from that point onwards so really um, an awful lot of the other games in the early 80s 82, 83 uh, many of them are fairly simplistic in comparison to The Hobbit mm. and there was a sense I think of people scrabbling to try and replicate some aspect of that okay. magic which I, th I think in many ways they achieved. Um, come 84 you have games um, coming in which really challenged expectation, turned things on its head, um, in many ways were coming back to genres that had been explored in the early 80s and sort of revisiting them in right. a slightly different way. And then you have games like Sherlock, for instance, which <laughs> yeah. um, had this uh, detective-based puzzle mm -hmm. system in it, which was very innovative for its time. Um, you then have the um, parody games that Melbourne House brought out, games like Terran Molinas um, mm -hmm. and Hampstead and Dodgy Geezers, which um, were, were really innovative titles and really challenged people's uh, view of what you could do with an mm -hmm. adventure game at the time. And then I think 
you hit these watershed moments where you have people like Fergus McNeil um, yeah. and, and Delta Four, where he really, really started to hit the ground running with games like um, Robin of Sherlock, mm-hmm. uh, The Boggart you mentioned earlier, um, The Big Sleaze, games like that, yeah. you know, really uh, ambitious games, which really went uh, into a lot of detail, um, which really challenged um, the, the spectrum, pushed the spectrum mm. to its limits, that kind of thing. And then, of course, near the end of the decade, you get games like you know, the Magnetic Scrolls games yep. you mentioned earlier, games like Jinkster and Corruption and The Pawn, um, which were a, a really a, as perfect a bruise you were ever going to get mm-hmm. of good puzzles, atmosphere, and um, not on the spectrum, but on other platforms, certainly had really good, you know, graphical accompaniment yep. as well. And it says a lot actually that Strand Games are now re-releasing these Magnetic Scrolls games for Android and the iPhone. I was going to mention. I was going to mention the evolution of these games. Uh, it seems to me that the the power of modern uh, smartphones it's infinitely more than anything that was around in the eighties. So and. These text-based or text and graphic-based adventure games seem perfect fodder for someone sitting on a train or mm. someone sitting in a bus. And what a wonderful way to while away your commute playing one of these amazing games from the, the early 80s or late 80s. Yeah. Um, and that is something that's happening. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that's really keeping the, the, the flame alive, mm-hmm. as it were, because um, this is uh, not new text adventures, although there are, are new text adventures mm-hmm. to be had on uh, on iPhone and on uh, Android platforms. But really, what's interesting about it is the fact that, as you say, it's never really gone away. No. Um, it's perhaps not as mainstream as it once was, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, people just find an aspect of charm and a sense of engagement, I think, yeah. with it as a genre, which has kept it going. It's quite funny. We... we, we um we define we define mainstream probably slightly different from the mainstream. Mm. Yes, <laughs> that's very true. And that and, and and that we we are sitting in a we are sitting in a in a cellar surrounded by comics discussing a very very specific niche within an incredibly specific niche and describing it as mainstream. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mainstream, but your mileage may vary. <laughs> So, have you found yourself discovering or rediscovering any old favourites from the 80s, or have you found yourself discovering for the first time during the research for your book anything that you'd completely overlooked? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say a bit of both, as a matter of fact, because my all-time favourite text adventure game is The Very Big Cave Adventure by St Brides, um, which was released by CRL, and it is just absolutely pitch-perfect. Um, and in two ways, actually. One, because it sends up the colossal cave adventure so okay. well, and all of the strange, abstruse puzzles that came with that original, you know, really very formative adventure game. But also because it just, obviously, you can tell the people who are involved in it really enjoyed themselves. Right. Because the jokes are really funny. You kind of get the feeling that an awful lot of thought went into it, and it parodies everything. There's literary parody, there's cultural parody, there's, in a sense, political parody in there as well um, it's just a, an absolute master class in really good adventuring by people who clearly had a good time doing what they were doing Right. so from that point of view um, yeah I mean I think that I was keen to go back and have a look at what other games had come out by the same developer mm-hmm. and it was the same with places like Delta 4 where I played some of the games but not all of them certainly not in the, the early part of the decade um, when Fergus McNeil was just getting started um, and that led me to a new appreciation of his later work games like Mindfighter where mm-hmm. he, he suddenly became serious um, when they, they under the abstract concepts label 
So there was an, an aspect of that, but what really impressed me were all of the slightly more niche independent titles. Okay. Um, particularly near the end of the, the decade, because a lot of these games had been um, homebrew and had never been commercially available. Um, I think we were, to an extent, slightly spoiled in the 80s because companies like Mastertronic saw a niche and suddenly you were seeing computer games appearing in garden centres and news agents yeah. and places like yeah. that. Um, and it was easy to overlook a lot of these games, which were produced often by people in their, in their own mm -hmm. homes and, uh, and sent out by mail order. And that's a great pity because a lot of these games were incredibly sophisticated mm -hmm. and beautifully written. So it gave me an opportunity to revisit, or in some cases to discover mm -hmm. for, the, for the first time, um, a lot of these games. Um, and uh, and that has, I think, really been the, the great pleasure of having written mm -hmm. the book, is that so many of these titles that had never never really occurred to me before um, had come to the forefront. I would say I found that also, and that um, it was great to read the book, or it was great to flick to the, the sections of the book that you had uh, you had done the adventure and to read about it and, and reminisce but one of the fantastic things about it was just almost flicking through and stopping hmm. randomly and looking at a page and realizing i've never i've never even heard of this label hmm. let alone this game yeah. and this game sounds to me to be absolutely fantastic and right up my street hmm. um and you tend to forget now that and now you just Google something and it'll tell you where you can get it and how to get it and within two minutes you can have downloaded it whereas in the 80s your access was geographical and to some extent or happening to read about it in a specific magazine so mm. uh, you didn't have access to all the fantastic things that were available at the time yeah. um, I purchased my games from a, a Hoover repair shop and that was because the person who owned the Hoover repair shop happened to be into games. Yeah. And so he had a rack with cassettes on it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not like now. So and the more that they can come out on to things like Android and, and iPhone, mm. that's fa fabulous for me. That's a wonderful thing. But this book, uh, Spectrum of Adventure, is uh, an A to Z guide of now games that I have to try and find. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because eighty percent of them I I I hadn't heard of, mm. uh, and and as you said earlier, this is scratching the surface almost of of uh, of what is out there. So this is a hundred games of thousands that that are available. So yeah. it just shows you the sort of depth of the the depth of the genre really. Mm. And that was actually one of the big challenges, was the fact that what hundred titles do you choose to be representative Yeah, of, that'd be very difficult. Yeah, of, of, of such a wide variety mm -hmm. of, of, you know, and it is a big library mm -hmm. of titles, you know. Um, so that was one issue I had right from the beginning, was I knew right from the start there would be certain titles I were going to miss out that would mm -hmm. be somebody's favourite. Yeah. Um, and uh, even right until the, the last gasp of, of writing it, I was thinking, they do leave this in, they take this out. Mm -hmm. um, there were just so many. I mean... Do you think you would revisit the Spectrum again? Yes, I, I think I will be revisiting the Spectrum again, um, possibly in a year or two. Um, I'm quite keen to look at a different aspect of the system, though. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, having looked at the interactive fiction as it directly related to text adventuring, um, there are other aspects of interactive fiction which were not text-based. Okay. And I'm quite keen to have a look at that and to see what the, how different the dynamics were, mm -hmm. actually, in, in those kind of games. Because okay. I mean, if if these games were ambitious, stretching the limits with you know text only mm -hmm. interfaces, um, how much more 
ambitious were these games where you know the graphical interfaces. Yeah, the mind boggles really as to what you can, what some of these programmers managed to squeeze out of such a meagre amount of power. Yeah, I mean, interesting with the the comic connection. Do you remember Red Hawk by Melbourne House? Yes, I do. And also um, Stifflip and Co by Palace Software. I didn't. No, because they're very very okay. comic oriented right, interfaces, okay. um, and you can tell there's a a comic strip ambition. Okay. To try and recreate that aspect of graphic narrative. Yeah, I mean that 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 um, graphic style lends itself well to um, to a, a relatively low powered computer system. To be honest with you, hmm. you can do something with it. I don't know. I don't quite understand how people who do these things manage to do them, hmm. because when you look at the raw the raw statistics, you think, well, that shouldn't be humanly possible. Hmm. But apparently it is. That's the magic of machine code. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently it is, and you just you kind of your your mind does boggle. Um, so how long? Here's the question: How long did it take you to write this hefty tome? It took about a year. Um, that That's was a, not bad. It's about three months of research, and then right. about nine months of writing and research mm-hmm. um, as it as it was ongoing. Because I was quite fortunate in the sense a lot of the games I had played already. In yep. the 80s, so in a way it was a refresher course. <laughs> um, a lot of them were entirely new to me though, okay. and obviously you had to play them right through, because mm-hmm. if you didn't, people would know, because a lot of people buying the book would be enthusiasts. Yes. So it wouldn't be entirely fair to not have some mm. aspect within the book of what the atmosphere of the game was like. and the, the, the So have style. you played them all? Yes. Wow. I have, um, and uh, I can't say I necessarily completed them all, but right. I did play them all. And the reason I say that is because if you were to sit with a playthrough for a lot of these games, mm. you'd lose half the fun. Yeah. Because a lot of the the entertainment value came from really, really abstract puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a little too abstract, if I'm entirely honest. Yeah. But um, it, it's it's interesting from that point of view to look at just how the sophistication of these puzzles developed over mm-hmm. that, the course of that decade. And you, so know, you have to wonder about the minds of. Some of the people who created these games, though. Mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> quite possibly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think with, with some admiration as well, yeah. because, you know, surreal, sometimes even absurdist, mm-hmm. but always entertaining. Yeah, I think that the one thing that shines through them all, or, or all the ones that I've played, um, is that even if... The, even if some of them weren't fantastic games, and like all genres, uh, there's wheat and there's chaff and, and mm. that's the way that it works for them all but I think they were all um, they were all a labour of love and mm. uh, that the, the, most of the people making these games were never going to make huge fortunes out of making these games mm. I mean even at the time it was a niche within computer gaming yeah. uh, and the shiny graphical games where you could run about and hack at things were always going to be much much more popular mm. than a text based or an interactive fiction and yeah. um, but you do feel the passion mm. in the games. So the, they all bring something to the table, even if the entirety of the game maybe isn't as satisfying as you would love or the, the, the limitations of the language that the person's used in the game isn't the best that it could be. You still get some pleasure out of playing them. Mm-hmm. And I think what this book has done for me is that it's made me think about the possibility of dipping my toe in again mm-hmm. I don't think I would try and redo all 100 
<laughs> I think no. In fact, I know I'm not going to. I'm not going to do a hundred. But every single one of them is interesting to read about, and that's what I enjoyed about the book. Although it feels like it's it's encyclopedic in style. It's kind of a page turner because you want to get to the end of the the, the adventure, mm. and then you want to see what the next one's all about. So I I found it a, an engaging read just from the perspective of picking it up. Mm and randomly reading it it didn't feel like i had to i wanted to research something therefore i need to read this book it does feel like a page turner so yeah. i think you've done well in conveying the the atmosphere of the games and the, the feeling of the games and it's not just a book about this is what this this is what happened in this game you do get a feeling that you've played them which is why i, I was uh, i was wondering if you had and uh, i'm very impressed it's like so <laughs> clap although it's, it has to be said it's a wonderful way to spend your day if it's uh, what you i'm working <laughs> um the Spectrum of Adventure is a fabulous, a fabulous read. Um, but more important than the book itself, reading the book and then rediscovering the gems that are within its pages, I think, are, is the most important part. It's made me fall in love again with ZX Spectrum interactive fiction. So I do thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Not at all. Um, now, I am going to have to play... The Hobbit again, and hopefully, <laughs> and hopefully, and this time, this time, I'm not going to feel bad about it being a copy mm -hmm. that I borrowed from a friend. Okay. <laughs> will you feel inspired to sit down and sing about gold like Thorn? Uh, I'm always inspired to sing about gold like Thorn. Okay. I'm a I'm a 1980s style. Um, who's Ed Sheeran? Mm. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to discuss? Well, just to say, do you know, I've written 13 books, and I think this one's my favourite. And the reason it's my favourite is because I really felt I was helping to preserve, in the cultural consciousness, mm -hmm. in even a small way, people who had really influenced the way that I look at literature, okay. as being something that shifts and develops and evolves. Mm -hmm. um, it says a lot that these sort of hypertext fictions are still so popular now and mm -hmm. still fascinating people now. Um, and really in the 80s, Britain had such a vibrant interest in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I was really keen to try and bring it alive for people who had lived through it and people who maybe hadn't lived through yeah. it but were keen to find out more about it. So from that point of view, of all the books I've done, I think this one's the most personal. Well, I think, I think actually, that's, that's a very interesting point that you bring up about bringing it back into the consciousness. Um, I think you're right in that there's people of an age. Uh, I I am a, I, I am one of those people of that age that um, it, it, nineteen eighty before nineteen eighty the idea of the notion of having a computer in your home well, was fanciful. In fact, the notion of a computer was fanciful. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know what a computer was, let alone that I wanted one in my home. So uh, I think you're right in that there's a huge there's generations of people who haven't been exposed to these games. Mm -hmm. And a book like this, a book like this, the the Spectrum of Adventure, should trigger. There'll be thousands of people out there who don't know that they're they are in love with this sort of game, mm. um, and they just have to have the opportunity to to have that passion ignited. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, and I think that is a fabulously um, altruistic thing that you've done. I'm glad it's your. I'm glad it's your favourite book, <laughs> even. 
even though it's allowed you to spend countless hours playing uh, text adventures. What a hardship that was. <laughs> it's, it's a hard life, but someone's got to do I think, again, on also an interesting point of what we have found in the store over the last year or so is that there has been a massive resurgence in Dungeons and Dragons mm. in the passion for Dungeons and Dragons and in very very on the face of it technology free um, non visually stimulating text based and imagination based gaming mm. and you would think that that would be not the case now as, as technology becomes more and more accessible, as, as visual stimuli are bombarding people, uh, people are constantly looking at their cell phones and watching videos and streaming services, that there wouldn't be a place for that anymore. But it's absolutely to the contrary. We are having huge amounts of people coming in who are playing, regularly playing, games of paper and the mind. And these text-based adventure games are very much the market for that. If, if you enjoy Dungeons & Dragons and you enjoy tabletop gaming and you enjoy role-playing gaming, you will absolutely enjoy these games because these are what these games are. Yeah. They are games of the mind. They are games of the imagination. They stimulate your thought process and they st and they, you conjure the world in your head. Yeah. And, I mean, do you think there's nostalgia involved in that? Because I think about things like, you know, you see the Crystal Maze. I mean, mm. Meteoric success, that's yeah. had as a comeback. And um, Nightmare with Hugo Myatt. You know, yeah. there's this campaign to bring that back. I mean, do you think there's an, that an would aspect? Be that would be interesting. Um, I think what there's certain things like um, Stranger Things, mm. the, the TV series Stranger Things, which kind of has a feeling of the 80s about it and I think that's helped mm -hmm. but no I think what it is is people have, are starting to realise again that they want to create their own worlds mm -hmm. um, and these are fantastic fully formed worlds within these games but you, you have to visualise them yourself mm -hmm. and everyone's visualisation of every game in this book will be their own yeah uh, we will absolutely not share that world. Uh, and I think people are starting to rediscover that they like that. Mm. They don't want to have the world shown to them. They want to create that world for themselves. Mm. And things like tabletop gaming, role-playing gaming, mm. and these games give you that latitude they allow they create a world for you and allow you to create the vision of that world for yourself so um every single player's experience will be slightly different hmm. every time they pick up the game yeah, and i think that's a magic in narrative isn't it because mm -hmm. i mean if you give one thousand people a novel you can guarantee everybody will have a slightly different mm -hmm. view in their mind of who the characters are like what that world is yeah. like on the other hand if you give a thousand people a copy of a judge dread comic you can guarantee they will all have a different view of what Mega City One is like yes. off off the panel, off the page. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, what you know, what that the texture of that society is like, yeah. what the cultural values are, and things like that. Yeah. And I think that's uh, even films like Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's still inspiring people with you know, just such an incredibly evocative view. I of, think you're absolutely of right. The future. But I think people have forgotten that that's. I think people have forgotten that that is the the, the stimulating thing about literature and art and movies and games and and because because things have become so technologically advanced mm. and 
the things that filmmakers, uh, movie makers, game makers can do now are so phenomenally good. Mm. Uh, it's mind-bogglingly good yeah. uh, that for a little while people forgot that no matter how great that was, it pales into insignificance by what you can create in your own mind. Mm. Yes. Um, they're just they're just trying they're striving to try and achieve what each individual can create in their own mind yeah. and you're wowed by it but really inside your own head is something much much more powerful mm. and when you expose them to games like these games mm. suddenly they realize actually i'm a fantastically creative person yeah i just didn't have a creative outlet and this allows people to have that creative outlet mm. absolutely it's a passive creative outlet. I mean, they're, they're not having to create something physical, mm -hmm. but it is still allowing them to have a creative outlet, and everyone loves to have that yeah. feeling. Which is why when people watch movies, they'll say, no, that's terrible, that's not right. That isn't what that place looks like. Hmm. Um, the reality is that it doesn't look like anything. It only looks like how you've visualised it yourself. So, yeah. no, this is why games like this are so important, mm -hmm. and why the people creating these games have left such a legacy for us all i think the lack of the power of the computer allowed these people to create worlds that weren't constrained by that mm -hmm. because the the imagination is limitless yeah true and the fact that we're able to do it in only 48 kilobytes of memory which is that's a, bizarre a, a decent size email now it's just it's just incredible i don't yeah I, that will always be beyond my ability to comprehend um yeah the technical ability to create something uh, I, I know you mentioned i know we've mentioned the hobbit before um you're right i think we were very we were spoiled hmm. by how advanced that particular game was hmm. Yeah. Which which did mean that everything that came after it for a period of time felt slightly underwhelming, mm -hmm. because the, because you thought, well, this is already out. Surely the next one must be better. Well, no, actually, as it happens, this person's managed to do something truly remarkable with the technology at their disposal. Mm. Yeah. Um, you just want, and because there is no lack of depth in that game. Mm, no, it's not true. lacking anything. No, no. I mean, I even understood things like mass and weight, you know, which yeah. are concepts that tend not to come into a lot of other text adventure games. Yeah. So from that point of view, it was which are games, which are things that modern modern games on very very high powered PCs and consoles sometimes uh, find it difficult to to do. Mm. So modern adventure games, things like Oblivion, mm. uh, where encumbrance mm. and your body size makes a difference to where you can go in those games. Absolutely. Whereas in some of these other games, it's an irrelevance. Yes. I mean, that's absolutely true. And it's something I think that probably lends itself more to role-playing games now. Mm. Um, and it says a lot for the skill of the programmers, you know, yep. who had a background in computing science and mathematics and things yep. like that, that they were able to bring that aspect to, you know, something that had such a creative drive. Yeah. You know, it's it's a really interesting blend of programming talent and vision. Yeah, I think that's the key. And uh, sometimes programmers are uh, maligned as, uh, or they have the people have the impression of programmers of being quite dull and quite uh, math based and and quite obsessive and not very personable or very social or having much creativity. Yeah. Well, these games belie that, don't they? Really, I mean, the fact is that computer games are made by 
programmers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly these ones, because they weren't vast teams of people no. doing crafting these. Um, you didn't. You, there wasn't one person creating a particular landscape that was mm. only going to be on the screen for 30 seconds. This was a, a body of work that they were creating for themselves. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it is astonishing. Yeah. It is astonishing. It is. It is. It's a period we'll never get back again, actually, and that's the, yeah. that's the interesting thing. I think you're right. I mean, everything evolves. Mm. But the benefit we have is, of course, that we have, we have the things that are available now mm. and the things that are available tomorrow but we've also got the things that were here 40 mm. years ago. Yeah, and hats off to the people who've preserved all of that software mm -hmm. for future generations, yep. you know, that's all available digitally now. I know it's tremendous, because certainly I haven't. I mean, mine were all in a shoebox somewhere, and now they are still probably in a shoebox somewhere, but um, I don't know where that shoebox is. Yeah. <laughs> we have the shoebox that is the World Wide Web now. Yes. The infinite shoebox. <laughs> I'm trademark. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you about the spectrum of adventure. It's a brief history of interactive fiction on the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. It's not that brief a history. It's a very comprehensive history. Um, as I said earlier, it's actually a... Despite the fact that it doesn't sound like it will be, it's actually a real page-turner. If you've ever played interactive fiction games, it's definitely for you. If you play role-playing games now, it's something for you. You will want to start playing these games once you've read this book. And if you've got absolutely no idea what I'm talking about at all, it's worth picking it up and looking at the thing that helped create the video uh, games of today, the uh, fiction of today, and the movies of today, because these games definitely helped shape the future of the entertainment industry as we see it now. Albie, thanks very much for having me here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Not at all. Thank you. <laughs>